You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. We've got about a chapter and a half left in Matthew. Some have asked. I've been in Matthew, I think, um, the first sermon I preached in Matthew was in 2017. So that's about half a decade. And um, some have asked me what we're going to do next. And we made a decision this week on what we're going to do next. How many of you want to know? Well, you'll have to come that Sunday and find out. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Matthew 27, verses 15 through 26. Isn't that terrible that I would do that? They say that, like, when you take preaching classes, they say you're supposed to, you know, get your congregation to like you before you preach. And then to try and pull something like that is just so counterintuitive. But anyway, we're in Matthew 27, verses 15 through 26. I'm not telling you today. (laughs) I didn't tell the first service, so I won't tell you. But I'm sure you'll find out in the next few weeks. Matthew 27, 15 through 26. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Brabus. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be upon us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray together. Oh, God in heaven, we pray that you would please be present with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We come to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and we pray that he would be known today, that in his person and in his works we would delight We pray that by his preached word, you would strengthen us this morning, and that those who are lost in their sins would be brought to the forgiving grace of Jesus, those who are backslidden would come home, that your people would be strengthened and unified for having gathered. Oh Lord, please anoint everything that takes place in this hour as the word is preached. In Christ's name, amen. So this is the uh, 
the Passover week, and as the Passover week wraps up, it's actually by now, it's daylight, likely, and so it's, we've spent a lot of time in the evening before the crucifixion of Christ, while this is the day of the crucifixion. Christ had his show trial with the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the high court of Israel, and he had his show trial with them, and they declared him guilty for blasphemy simply because he pronounced himself to be the Son of God. And then they delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Judea. He was appointed by Rome. And is the governor of Judea appointed by Rome? That is because Judea was captured by Rome. They were a subjective or subjugated people, a people who had been subjugated by the Roman government, the Jews were. And so is a, subject, a subjugated people, they had a governor over them that was foreign. He was the Roman governor. And if they wanted to execute someone, they had lost their powers to execute criminals. They couldn't have criminals executed. And the only way they could have criminals executed in Judea was to involve the Romans in the process. And so that's why Jesus was handed over to the Romans. God's providence, the Romans and the Jews conspire together. Jew and Gentile conspire together for the crucifixion of Christ. Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, believed that Jesus was innocent. That comes clear, comes through clearly in our last text that I looked at, and it comes through clearly today. He believed that Jesus was innocent, didn't deserve death, but Pilate was a political man. He's not interested in principle, although he is clearly troubled in his conscience. He is not interested in principle. He's a political man. And as a political man, he is most concerned about keeping his job. He's most concerned about his position, and he's most concerned about his finances personally. And so part of his job was to keep peace in Jerusalem. A fake peace, but he just had to keep peace in Jerusalem. And so long as he kept peace in Jerusalem, the Caesar wouldn't find out about things, and he would keep his job security. And so he's a political man. He's an opportunist, not operating on principle. Everyone in this text is guilty, except the man they declare is guilty. And there's literally thousands of people in this text now that are participating as the crowd gathers outside of Pilate's Jerusalem estate, the Praetorium. Everyone is guilty except one man, Christ himself. Pilate's guilty for his cowardice, for valuing his job more than he values justice and, and even Christ himself. The crowd is guilty for their bloodthirstiness and desiring to see Christ killed. The Jewish leaders are guilty for what we will see, their hypocrisy and their slander. Everyone in the text is guilty except one man, Jesus. 
And it, we have five opportunities here for Jerusalem to repent. It's really an offer, one last chance for Jerusalem to repent before they do the unthinkable, which is have Jesus crucified. One last chance for Jerusalem to repent. And so while the text demonstrates Pilate's sin and cowardice, it further demonstrates that the people of Jerusalem were absolutely without excuse at this point in time. So the, the verdict is in on the people of Jerusalem. They are under God's wrath and they deserve every little bit of it for what they pull here. The emphasis is on the sin of everyone involved and we see clearly that after five opportunities, this city will not, five final opportunities, this city will not repent. These are five lost opportunities that display Jerusalem's guilt. So I'll outline my sermon for you this morning if you want to follow along. It's really easy. It's the first opportunity for Jerusalem to repent, then the second opportunity for Jerusalem to repent, then the third, and you guessed it, the fourth and the fifth. So one, two, three, four, five opportunities for Jerusalem to repent. So if you get lost along the way, you've got five opportunities to get back into the sermon too. So five opportunities for Jerusalem to repent. The Passover feast, the Roman government had a tradition of releasing a Jewish prisoner. And remember, the Jews were a subjugated people. They were subject to Rome. And the Roman governor would release a Jewish prisoner. Every Passover, at their will, is, I guess, what he perceived as an act of kindness towards them. And I would think, I would hazard to guess, that the, the prisoner that they would release would typically be a political prisoner. Because that's the ones that the people would want released, is the political prisoners. The Roman occupation, any occupied people, typically has um, a movement within the general population that is plotting to somehow overthrow the occupying forces. What they see is a, an alien intrusion into their political system or into their sovereignty as a people. And so any occupied people typically have a movement from the inside to overthrow the occupying forces. And there were, uh, there were movements within Israel of zealots and militiamen. I think Simon the zealot, one of the disciples, was formerly one of them. But there were movements within Israel, within Judea, to overthrow the occupiers, Rome. And those who attempted to overthrow Rome and were then taken prisoner by Rome would have been perceived by, a, I would guess, a, a, a sizable faction of the population as political prisoners. Because the people would have seen the insurrectionists as doing what we all kind of want to do. And that's get rid of these, this foreign government that is now occupying Israel. And so every Passover, the Roman government would offer to release one of the political prisoners. And we are introduced today to a political prisoner. But we look at the situation in verse 15 and we see what I just said, that they offered to release a prisoner. So verse 15 says, now the feast, the Passover feast, the governor, was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now, let's just pause for a minute. You notice the word crowd there. Remember the crowds? How many times in Matthew 
have we heard the phrase or the word crowd? It seems that everywhere that Jesus goes, there's a crowd. And we're always dealing with what? The crowds, the crowds, the crowds, the crowds. They're everywhere. Always having to deal with the crowds. And here's the crowd. And so to quell the crowd that gathers outside Pilate's Jerusalem residence, the praetorium, they release a prisoner. And today we're introduced to a prisoner by the name of Barabbas, a Jewish man held prisoner by the Roman government in verse 16. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. If you read the other Gospels, what do you find? But that Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a zealot, a militiaman. He was part of the group that had formed is a civilian militia that was going to overthrow the Roman government, at least it was their objective, to liberate the people from Rome. He would have been considered, in the eyes of the Jewish people, a freedom fighter. Somehow we have to achieve freedom amongst these tyrants or from these tyrants, and we're going to achieve it by military force, and so he would have been one of those people an insurrectionist, and not only an insurrectionist was Brabus, but Brabus was man who was a man who was involved in an insurrection, and while he was involved in the insurrection, committed murder. He killed someone. I don't know who he killed, but he killed someone. And so he was a violent insurrectionist, according to the other Gospels. Brabus. They had a notorious prisoner named Brabus. And with the introduction of this notorious prisoner named Barabbas, we have the first opportunity for Jerusalem to repent. But before I move on to the first opportunity for Jerusalem to repent, one more comment, and that is that my sermon's going to end with some very clear application. But before I get into the body of the sermon, I want to give you one clear point of application because the bulk of it is going to be at the end. And the one clear point of application that I want to give you before we get into this is the one clear point of application I want you to take home today is that often before God judges people, before He damns them, He gives them opportunities to repent because He's merciful and He's kind. Here we have five. And if you're here today and you're in sin, God's giving you an opportunity to repent. And you don't know how many more you have. This could be your last. You don't know. I don't know what your excuse is for your sin. I don't know what your reason is for your unbelief and your rebellion against God. But you've got at least one more opportunity today to turn from your sin and embrace the free grace of Jesus Christ and entrust yourself to him. So come to Jesus, because this might be your last opportunity. These guys had five more, with, and they were lickety-split. Boom, 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 boom. Probably didn't even take as long as this sermon's going to take. 
and then their hearts were hardened. Jerusalem's first opportunity to repent. Having interrogated Christ in the Praetorium, his Jerusalem residence, he would have preferred to be by Caesarea by the sea where he had his official residence, but during the feast times he'd come to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a hotbed of rebellion and sedition in Rome, much like those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s remember the situation in Ireland and how volatile it was on a regular basis, and very similar Jerusalem would have been perceived in that day. And Jerusalem was a place where there was always a lot of activity, and the activity, the militia activity and the sedition and the attacks would typically take place during religious festivals. And so Pilate would go to Jerusalem during the religious festival. This was a religious festival, the, the high religious festival, which is the Passover. Everyone's in Jerusalem, so Pilate's in Jerusalem. And he's, he's interrogated Jesus Christ in the Praetorium, his official residence. And now what he does is he steps outside the Praetorium on a raised platform to address a crowd, a crowd, a crowd, a crowd, that is gathered there. And why have they gathered there? They've gathered there, we already learned the circumstances, because it is the custom of the Roman government to release a political prisoner at the feast. And so they've gathered for this yearly event whereby Pilate exits the praetorium, stands on a raised platform, addresses the crowd, and releases a political prisoner. Verse 17. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, Pilate didn't believe Jesus is guilty. This comes out very clearly, and it even came out in the last text, verses 11 through 14. So he's, is the political man that he was, he's looking for an easy out. He's hoping that they don't choose Christ. He's actually thinking, if I put Christ before them and Barabbas before them, they'll probably choose Christ to be released and Barabbas to be killed because Barabbas is such a shady guy. And why would we choose Barabbas over Christ? What kind of Baddie behavior would that be to choose Barabbas over Christ? And so he hopes they'll choose Christ. Verse 18, he knows the innocence of Jesus, and it says, it comments on that in verse 18, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. It was out of envy that the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus killed. Now, envy, I, there's a really good definition I came across, and Hendrickson's commentary where he said, envy is the displeasure aroused by seeing someone else having what you do not want him to have. And the religious leaders were envious of Jesus. He had something they didn't want him to have and they wanted it, but they didn't have it. And some people say it was the popularity of Jesus that, that they wanted. He was popular with the people. He was a people's preacher, right? He, he attracted um, the, the working class and, and they couldn't do that. The working class might've had some disdain for them. And that could have been part of it. I suspect it likely is. But if you read the Gospel of Matthew, the thing that is regularly contrasted between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day is not the popularity as much as it is that unlike the religious leaders, he preached as one who had authority. I suspect that the envy was from his preaching ministry because 
he held nothing back. He was fearless. He did not fear the Pharisees. He did not fear the Sadducees. He did not fear the scribes. And in fact, as we saw, as he wound up his ministry in the temple during the Passover week, they tried to attack him and confuse him, and he just left them with their tongues tied. They couldn't get an edge on him. Proving himself to be the superior exegete, the superior theologian, and the superior preacher. And so I suspect that the envy came from the fact that he was one who preached with the wisdom and power of God. Something they didn't have. So they hated him for it. They hated everything about Christ. They hated what he stood for. They hated his preaching. They hated his disciples. They, they hated what he said. They hated his clarity. They hated how cutting he was with the religious leaders. They hated his fearlessness. They hated his courage. They hated him. They envied him. Because of envy, they hated him. And what we see happen here is this envy that comes out of them is he has found favor with God and they do not have favor with God. That's absolutely clear. He has the favor of God. They do not have the favor of God. I think it's similar to the envy that came out in the first few chapters of the Bible between Cain and Abel. Because Cain saw the favor of God rest upon Abel, so he killed him. Right? And here they see the favor of God resting upon Christ. And they want that favor. So they want him dead. And this is the war that's been going on throughout all of human history. It's the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And here we have the seed of the serpent has infected the entire population of Judea. And the seed of the woman has been boiled down to one man. Jesus Christ, and Judea wants him dead. Beyond his assessment of the situation, Pilate's, Pilate's wife warns him in verse 19. His wife has a warning for him. Here's what it says, verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, so he's sitting down, he's on his raised platform addressing the crowds outside, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Her advice was not 100% good because she said, have nothing to do with him. But her advice was somewhat good because she testified to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is a righteous man, she said. And she was one of those people who when things are starting to get weird and starting to get dark in society, she was one of those people, although not converted, she could smell it in the air and she could sense that something was wrong. So everybody in Jerusalem knew who Jesus was because it tells us at the triumphal entry that they all found out who he was because there was such a hoopla at the triumphal entry. And then she would have been woken in the night as the religious leaders brought Jesus into the praetorium for his trial before Pilate. She knew that he was in there, and she somehow had a dream that Pilate shouldn't have anything to do with this situation, and she communicates, have nothing to do with this man, with this righteous man, she says. My guess is, is she knew who Jesus was. I know she knew who Jesus was, because everyone did by this point. The whole town was in a big uproar when he entered in the triumphal entry. And then at night... The religious leaders marched Jesus into the praetorium for the trial under Pilate. My guess is, is Pilate was woken up out of bed because it was nighttime. And she knew that he was woken up out of bed. She was his wife. He told her what she was, he was doing. 
And then she went back to sleep, and that's likely when she had the dream. So she wakes up from her dream, and she realizes, like a lot of people do when things aren't right, but she, she's not born again, but she can just, she can smell the air. I can smell it. It's not good. This is a bad situation. This is a great injustice. And so she warns him. She warns him. He was on her mind, and she warns him. Interestingly, some Eastern traditions say that she converted, and they've named her as a saint. If, if that is the case, that she converted, there's no biblical evidence for that. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It's just there's no biblical evidence for that. But this is Jerusalem's first offer to respond. They could have let Jesus go. Verse 19, Pilate is warned. He's got an opportunity to respond. And verse 17, they're offered between Jesus and, and Barabbas. This is their first opportunity, but they lost their opportunity in verse 20. Verse 20 says, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Opportunity lost. The people were manipulated by the religious leaders, and they manipulated them to choose that Barabbas be released instead of Jesus. That's the first opportunity. Here's Jerusalem's second opportunity to repent. Pilate makes the offer again, and they choose Barabbas, verse 21. The governor again, so again, this is the next opportunity, the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. The chief priests had smeared Jesus to Pilate as being a traitor to Rome, which he wasn't, to demonstrate the utter inconsistency of the sinful mind. They choose the traitor Barabbas over the one they accused of being a traitor, Jesus Christ. I hope you didn't miss that. I hope you picked that up. What was Barabbas lawfully convicted of? Treason against Rome. He was lawfully convicted of being an insurrectionist. Who do the religious leaders manipulate the people into freeing? The insurrectionist. The traitor against Rome. The one who was convicted of treason against Rome. What did the religious leaders, when they brought Jesus to Pilate, what did they accuse Jesus of being? An insurrectionist and a traitor to Rome. What does this tell us about the religious leaders? The religious leaders don't give a rip about those who commit treason against Rome. The religious leaders don't give a rip about those who are insurrectionists against Rome. The religious leaders, any amount of excitement, and there was lots, when they brought Jesus to Pilate, accusing Jesus of being a traitor and an insurrectionist to Rome, any amount of excitement that they brought to the table was completely manufactured, and Pilate now sees it. He sees it. He knows they don't think Jesus is a traitor, and, he, and even if they do think Jesus is a traitor, he knows that they don't care that he's punished. It's for some other nefarious, dark reason that they want Jesus punished. Because they clearly don't care about treason, and they clearly don't care about insurrection, because if they cared about treason and they cared about insurrection, they wouldn't have asked that Barabbas was released, because Barabbas wasn't just an insurrectionist. He killed someone in his insurrection. I hope you understand. 
He was an actual traitor. But we've learned from the other accounts, and even from what happened before this, in the earlier passage, that Jesus was accused of declaring he's king of the Jews, and then what happened in the other accounts is he was accused because of that he was one who was a threat to Roman rule. Well, Barabbas is a real threat to Roman rule because he was willing to kill. We know that. And so what we see here is that the Jewish leaders are hypocrites. And what I mean when I say hypocrites is that it's acting. Everything is a charade. Everything is an act. Pilate now sees that they don't care about the traitors to Rome, and they only care about murdering Jesus Christ. Their hypocrisy is exposed. It's madness. It's total battiness. It's so outlandish what's going on here. That's their second opportunity to repent. They don't take it. They lost their opportunity. Well, they have, they have a third opportunity. By the way, Pilate has an opportunity too to repent, but he doesn't take it either. They have a third opportunity to repent. Pilate is offered, he's offered, sorry, he's offered of the Jews. He offers the Jews another opportunity to repent, but he knows Christ is innocent. So what he does is he tries to weasel himself out of this with one more offer. And hopefully they'll choose right this time. What's the, what's the definition of insanity? Right? You, you keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, and you think you're going to get the, a different result? That's insane. What's Pilate doing? Well, he thinks he's, if he, well, maybe if I offer them Barabbas and, or Jesus one more time, they'll pick Barabbas. But he's, he's losing his mind too. Everyone in this passage is losing their mind, and this is how, how the sinful mind gets warped, doesn't it? But what you see one thing in this passage is not only that God offers free grace and he provides warnings before he brings judgment, but not only that, sin makes you crazy. These people are crazy. They've lost their minds. And he wants the Lord Jesus to be declared innocent, but he doesn't want to offend the crowd. But maybe this time they'll choose right. He thinks way too highly of these people. Verse 22 says, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Thinking that he's going to force this on them. Well, maybe they really don't want him to be crucified, do they? I mean, they know that he's innocent. And then so how do they respond? Crucify him. Let him be crucified in verse 22. Eventually, eventually, Pilate's got to realize that these people want him dead. They, you can't reason with them. And Pilate thought higher of the Jews than he should have. They're under a spell and have been whipped up into this demonic frenzy. And Pilate is a terrible man. Since when, by the way, does a judge, so he's functioning as judge here. Since when does a judge, you know, he, he knows what's right, he knows what's wrong. And then he turns to the population and says, hey, you help me figure out what's right and wrong. It's the prerogative of the judge to make the judgment. So this is a terrible judge. This is a terrible politician. He's a total wet noodle. And he's pronouncing now, he's rendering his verdict on the basis of public sentiment, not on the basis of evidence. Pilate, Pilate's a terrible human being. Jerusalem's third opportunity to repent. I said there'd be five opportunities. That was the third. Here's the fourth. Pilate knows Christ is innocent, and so he gives them another opportunity. But... This time, 
their demonic frenzy won't even engage in the opportunity. They're so whipped up here. Verse 23. And he said, why? What evil has he done? Now notice he asks them the question. He already knows he hadn't done evil. But he asks them the question. And previously, pay attention to this. Previously when he asked them the question, what were they able to say? Well, he's king of the Jews, insinuating he's a traitor. He's an insurrectionist. That's what they would have said in previous times. But they're trapped here. They can't say that because they're asking for the real traitor and the real insurrectionist to be released. And so they're trapped. So they won't even answer him. They, they don't care about truth anymore. They care about one thing and they care about power. And what they say in verse 23, he says, what evil has he done? Pilate knows he's done no evil. They even know he's done no evil, I think. But they shout it all the more, let him be crucified. They won't even engage at this point. They don't answer him. They just want blood. Crucify him. William Hendrickson captures the moment so well in his quick comment on this. Over and over again, these terrible words are yelled until they become a monotonous refrain, an eerie, ominous chant. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. The crowd had become a riotous mob an emotion-charged, screaming rabble, whipped up by the demons of hell. This crowd had become the voice of hell. The voice of hell. Pilate is a wet, noodled, unprincipled politician who should have acquitted Jesus right there on the spot and pronounced him innocent, not guilty, he knew he was innocent. He knew he was not guilty. He had been warned by his wife is one last offer of God's grace, but he wouldn't take responsibility for his actions. So what he does is he turns to the crowd. He's a wet-noodled, unprincipled, opportunistic politician. That's Pilate. The religious leaders by this point, it's very clear that they're wolves. They're the blind leading the blind. They're wolves who've been set loose amongst the flock to turn the flock away from Christ into hellfire, more concerned about themselves, more concerned about their position, more concerned about people what would think of them than they are about truth. Manipulative, sneaky devils that they are, the religious leaders. Pilate, the wet noodle politician, the religious leaders are wolves. And the crowd... Well, the crowd has become possessed by Satan himself, having had four offers to repent, but instead decides no longer to engage in the offers, but simply to rabidly and emotionally demand the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The crowd has descended into pure darkness. And as a point of application, you will hear among some people who, who claim to believe in the cause of freedom within our own context, there's a phrase that gets tossed around as these love, so-called lovers of freedom promote democracy. And the phrase is, the voice of the people is the voice of God. Well, if anything ever is a condemnation of pure democracy, it's this. The voice of the people is not the voice of God. 
God speaks for himself. Okay? And the voice of the people here becomes the voice of Satan. And pure democracy, unprincipled, unregulated democracy without the form of God's law descends into pure hell. And here's where it descends, right here. The democratic process, Jesus Christ is condemned to be crucified. Nobody to speak against him. An overwhelming majority wants him crucified. Christ is innocent. Pilate is the wet noodle, the religious leader of the wolves. The crowd becomes possessed by demons, and Christ himself is innocent. Pilate knows it. His wife knows it. And I suspect that even the crowd knows it because in verse 23, Pilate offers them one more opportunity to bring forward evidence against Jesus, and they refuse to answer, and their only engagement is, let him be crucified. That's the fourth opportunity to repent. The fourth. It gets worse as it goes on. It gets worse as it goes on. The fifth opportunity to repent that Jerusalem has. Here's the fifth. Pilate becomes more uncomfortable with the crowd because they threaten a riot in verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, and this, what, he would have lost his job perhaps if the riot had broken out, so he tries um, to have his cake and to eat it too. He doesn't want the riot because if news of riot gets back to Rome, he's going to get in hot water with Caesar and he might lose his job. And his most, the thing he's, he's most concerned about is his job. That's always a bad thing. I, I hope the thing you're most concerned about is not your job. I hope it's principle, the Lord Jesus and his honor, truth and justice. I hope that's what you're most concerned about, not your job. Well, Pilate's most concerned about his job, and it comes through here because he's not willing to do what's right. He wants to satisfy his conscience and the crowd all at once, so he's going to compromise. But in doing so, in his attempt to satisfy his conscience and satisfy the crowd, he cannot satisfy justice. And verse 24 tells us that. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. The washing of the hands is a reference to an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy 21, verses 6 through 7, which speaks of men absolving themselves of murders that they did not commit. And all the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes, or, nor did our eyes see it shed. Now Pilate wasn't a Jew, but he understood their customs enough to make this overture. And in declaring that he was washing his hands of the situation, not only was he declaring, at least to himself, he wasn't innocent, but he was declaring to himself that he was innocent. Not only was he doing that, but he was declaring before the people that this was a murder. He's communicating them with their own scriptures that this is murder. He knows it's murder, and now they know it's murder. This is another opportunity that they have to repent of the murder that they're about to commit. And then what he says at the end of it, when he washes his hand, is see to it yourselves. Which, by the way, is the same thing 
that the Pharisees and the religious leaders said to Judas when he brought the coins back into the temple, they said, see to it yourself. And so now those words are being used against them. He attempts, so, so, so you remember, when the coins came back into the temple, and they were brought back into the temple by, by Judas, Judas wanted to absolve himself of his own sin. They wouldn't let him. And they didn't want any participation in the returning of the blood money into the temple. So they said to Judas, see to it yourself. Well, now, in an, act, in an ironic twist, Pilate looks out at the crowd and he says it to them. Guess what? You're not getting away with it. You thought you could put it on Judas. Well, now it's on you. See to it yourselves. He attempts, in stating that, to not only declare their guilt, but he attempts to absolve himself by putting his guilt on the crowd. He should have acquitted Christ, but he's a coward. He's a political animal, so he tries to satisfy his conscience in the crowd all at once, but in attempting to do so, he does not satisfy justice. This political animal. He's compromised. This is terrible. And there's so many people that do this. They operate on the basis of compromise, not on the basis of principle. It's not the way to operate. You can even go to counselors that claim to be Christian, and they'll try to help you solve your issues. And what are they, as opposed to making Scripture bear on the situation, they say, well, you think this, you think this, well, let's just come here. Meet halfway. Well, maybe halfway is God's way, but maybe it's not God's way. Maybe God has something else to say, and one party's right and one party's wrong. Pilate is the guy that's always, well, let's meet halfway. Let's figure out how we can make everyone happy. I'll figure out how I can make my conscience happy, and I'll figure out how I can make my, my crowd happy. And I can keep my job in the process. Do you know how easy it is to weasel your way out of the consequences for sin, at least to convince yourself that you've weaseled your way out of it? Well, there's probably a really good reason to, con to compromise right now, isn't there? I mean, there's probably a greater good. Maybe that's the reason I'm compromising right now. Well, that's what Pilate's doing. He's figured out a really good reason to compromise. I mean, at least I can keep my job in, in here a little while longer. And so he found his way to compromise. And he compromises with the crowd. And the crowd. Remember the crowd? The crowd, the crowd, the crowd, the crowd. How many times do we hear about the crowd in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew? Over and again, we hear about the crowd, don't we? Oh, this crowd. It's so prominent in Matthew. For example, we'll just go a little backtracking here. Matthew chapter 4, verse 25. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 through 29. The crowds. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Or Matthew chapter 17, verse 14, we find out there's the crowds again. They're all over the place in Matthew. Everywhere that Jesus goes, there's a crowd. And when they came to the crowd, Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and oh, there's a crowd waiting for him. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, the crowd. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And I think most important to this text today is Matthew 21, verse 8 through 11, where the crowd at the triumphal entry hails him as David's son, the king of the Jews. 
And they say, most of the crowd, in Matthew 21, verse 8, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, that, don't mix that crowd up with the crowd today. Because that crowd indicates that these were the people that were coming from outside of Jerusalem into Jerusalem, likely from the northern regions of Israel, Galilee. They followed Jesus and they preceded him. And they created, as they were entering Jesus, a great scene where they hailed him as the son of David, the king of the Jews. But the people of Jerusalem, the text actually says, they didn't know what was going on. And so a week passes and we get here in chapter 27. And now crowds have gathered outside of the, of the praetorium where Pilate is, is in residence. And the crowds that have gathered outside of the praetorium are the citizens of Jerusalem combined with the people from northern Galilee that entered, is, or entered Jerusalem with Jesus. And so it's a mixing of the crowd. And it seems to me that the people of Jerusalem have infected the people who hailed Jesus king of the Jews so that the contagion of sin, the leprosy of sin, has spread from the people of Jerusalem, that dead sinful city, and it has now spread to the rest of the people of Israel who came into Israel. Instead of being the religious center of Israel, it's the center of apostasy, and the apostasy spreads to all of Israel. The crowds. How about those crowds, anyway? Verse 24, And Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, in chapter 27, but rather that a riot was breaking out. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd. Do you know that this is the last time the crowd is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew? All of a sudden, the crowd just disappears like Judas did. There was a time when Judas was last mentioned, and here was a time that the crowd is, the last, men is last mentioned. Why is the crowd last mentioned here? Because in verse 25, and all the people answered, his blood be upon us and on our children. They brought down the curse of God upon them. The crowds did. They seal it for themselves and for their children, the wrath of God. And 40 years later, Titus besieges Jerusalem, and he levels Jerusalem 40 years after this statement. In A.D. 70, when Titus comes into Jerusalem, you remember what he did? I talked about this before. He crucifies as many as 500 residents of Jerusalem a day. So that you look out at Jerusalem, Jerusalem looked like a forest of crosses with people hanging from them. Forty years later, that's a generation later. What did they say here? May his blood be upon us and upon our children. What happened 40 years later? Well, their children were crucified in the streets with them. That's an ironic judgment of God. Their blood was upon them and upon their children. They had five opportunities to repent in the space of a few minutes. And this is their final answer. His blood be upon us and on our children. And we do not hear about the crowds again in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, sin is unhinged, isn't it? It's, it's so Batty and crazy. I mean, they condemn the innocent Christ as a traitor, then they release the real traitor Barabbas or Barabbas as if he's innocent. It's nuts. It's so upside down and backwards. They, they choose the murderer Barabbas when they could have had the Savior Christ unhinged and backwards. 
They, they choose the guilty Barabbas when they could have had the innocent Christ. It's, it's nuts. It's, it's baddie. And sin hasn't changed in 2,000 years, you realize. How many here do the same? How many here choose the soul-murdering sin over the innocence of Jesus Christ in a moment of passion? Just this one time. Or how many, is there anyone here who's just sitting there and and you're letting sin ravage your soul because you like it so much. You know it's doing you no good, but you like it. And, and there's something that's cozy about it. And here I am standing here offering you the free grace of God if you will but repent and entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. And yet, just like the crowd, give us Barabbas away with Jesus. How many are doing that? Are any? Unhinged and batty, isn't it? How many do the same? How many? You don't call it Barabbas, do you? But it's still a killer. How many would love to indulge their secret porn habits? Because they fear coming clean and they reject the free offer of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Oh, I'll take the murderer of my soul, but away with Christ. They won't take his free grace. How many? How many will indulge the smoking of dope or the illicit sex or the drunkenness and won't come clean and would rather pretend that all is well while secretly knowing that they'll be damned to hell with the Jews that declared crucify him? You see, what I'm trying to say is that sin hasn't changed. It hadn't changed a bit in 2,000 years. And every one of us ought to hear this text and this cry to crucify Jesus Christ and know that many are there right now in this room and all of us have been there at one point or another, haven't we? I don't want to hear about this Christ, someone says in his heart. Choose some vile, unnameable darkness over the light of this world. How many? Is that you? Or how many are like Pilate, the coward? Well, I could name politicians. Our premier is certainly like him in one way or another. But how many right here are like him? He governs a people like that. That's why he gets away with what he does. You won't convert because you're too afraid of what somebody else will say about you or what somebody else will think about you. You're too afraid of what the crowds will say about you. Pilate by the way, it didn't go well for him. We know what happened with the crowds. They were crucified in 70 AD. But you know what happened to Pilate? Just a couple of years later after this, Caesar moved him out of Jerusalem. He demoted him, and he sent him off to Vienna, modern-day Austria. And he, he was impoverished in Vienna, and then he killed himself like Judas did. That's how it ends for Pilate. Pilate's not, Pilate had an opportunity here too, but he was too much of a coward to take it. You see, he gave his life for Rome. He gave his life for honor. He gave his life for his job, and he couldn't keep it. Because eventually Rome turned on him too, and they sent him off to Vienna, and there he died, a miserable, penniless man. He sold his soul for wealth, and isn't that how the devil always works? He overpromises and underdelivers. Over, he could have had Christ. He stood. Could you imagine 
Could you imagine Pilate? He looked Christ in the eyes and knew that he was innocent and would not entrust himself to him at that point. He wouldn't do it. And he'd rather have the honor of Rome and an honor that he lost within a two miserable years to the point where he was sent in despair and killed himself. It doesn't end well with people who choose sin over Christ. For people who love their sin more than Christ, oh, people will blame others. Pilate did. He blamed the crowd. He thought he could wash his hands of it. Don't think you can wash your hands of your sins. You can't wash. There's only one man that can wash away your sins. It's the man that was crucified in this text. He's the only one. No one else can wash away your sins. You can't wash them off your hands. You might go home and have a shower after you sin, but that doesn't remove the sin. The only thing that can remove the sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing else will remove the sin. And in one instance, in one way, this Barabbas, this Barabbas, he represents you and he represents me. Why? Because the guilty offender got off the hook while the innocent Christ was sent to the cross. Well, that should have been me on the cross. Well, that should have been you on the cross. And yet, by his free offer of grace, he gives, us, he, gives us a, he gives us forgiveness, and he gives us mercy, and he gives us everlasting life, and he turns his favor towards us, and we get to go scot-free just like that Barabbas, and then Jesus Christ goes to the cross on our behalf. And you sit there and you say, well, I'd rather have my sin than Jesus. I'd rather have the favor of my friends than Jesus. I'd rather the people like me than go to Jesus. Because I'm a coward like Barabbas, or like the crowds, or like, like uh, Pilate. I love my sin like the crowds love the sin. A hardened criminal like Barabbas. All of them were. There's only one in this text who's not guilty. You can't bear your own guilt, and you can't get someone else to bear your guilt. Pilate thought he could get the crowds to bear his guilt on his behalf. What he should have done is he should have turned to Jesus and asked him to bear his guilt because he's the only one that can bear guilt. And that's what you should. Don't blame your parents for your sin. Don't blame your husband for your sin. Don't blame your wife. Don't blame your kids. Don't blame anybody for, hey, don't even come to church and blame the church for your sin. Blame yourself. What the circumstances do is it, is it gives the sin an opportunity to fester. Blame yourself and then go put it on Jesus Christ because he offers you free grace and abounding love. Why would you despise that offer of grace? They had five opportunities, lickety split. They lost every single one of them. You don't know how many more opportunities you have. Why don't you come to Christ today and entrust yourself to Jesus? How many opportunities has he given you? How many? I don't know. But I have no way of knowing when the last opportunity will be either. As sure as the day is long, the last opportunity will come. Won't you come to Jesus Christ today? Who are you in this story? Well, I'm sure every one of us has been like this coward pilot. I'm sure every one of us has been like this crowd demanding that he be crucified because we love our sins so much. Are you there right now? Would you rather Christ be crucified? Or would you rather come clean with your sin? But you can be like Barabbas. You can go scot-free. And you can have full pardon and full redemption. And Jesus dies in your place. Admit that you're a sinner. Come to Jesus Christ. Your voice and your sin is in that crowd. Calling out and despising Christ. 
but throw yourself upon his mercy and entrust yourself to him completely, and he will remove your sins from you. Let's have prayer. Oh God in heaven, we pray that you would bless everyone here today with the knowledge of Christ, that everyone would be entrusting themselves to the Lord Jesus, the one true Savior, and that all would be forgiven. We pray, God, that your power would be manifested in this place today through the salvation of sinners. In Christ's name, amen.